Chapter 6 of Armageddon, 2419 A.D. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malcolm Cameron. Armageddon, 2419 by Philip Francis Nowlin. Chapter 6. The Wyoming Massacre. They're coming out of the ship. I spoke quietly with my hand over my mouth for fear they might hear me. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That seems to be all. Who knows how many men a ship like this is likely to carry? About ten if there are no passengers, replied one of my men, probably one of those on the hillside. How are they armed? I asked. Just knives, came the reply. They never permit hand rays on the ship. Afraid of accidents. Have a ruling against it. Leave them to us, then, I said, for I had hastily formed a plan in my mind. You on the hillsides. Take the ships above. Abandon the ring target. Divide up in training on those repeller rays. You on the hilltops. All train on the repellers of the ships to the south. Shoot at the word but not before. Wilma, crawl over to your left where you can make a straight leap for the door in that ship. These men are all walking around the wreck in a bunch. When they're on the far side, I'll give the word and you leap through the door in one bound. I'll follow. Maybe we won't be seen. We'll overpower the guards inside, but don't shoot. We may escape being seen by both this crew and the ships above. They can't see over this wreck. It was so easy that it seemed too good to be true. The Hans who had emerged from the ship walked around the wreckage lazily, talking in guttural tones, keenly interested in the wreck, but quite unsuspicious. At last they were on the far side. In a moment they would be picking their way into the wreck. Wilma, leap! I almost whispered the order. The distance between Wilma's hiding place and the door in the side of the Han ship was not more than fifteen feet. She was already crouched with her feet braced against a metal beam. Taking the lift of that wonderful inertron belt into her calculation, she dove head foremost like a green projectile through the door. I followed in a split second, more clumsily, but no less speedily bruising my shoulder painfully as I ricocheted from the edge of the opening and brought up sliding against the unconscious girl, for she evidently had hit her head against the partition within the ship into which she had crashed. We had made some noise within the ship. Shuffling footsteps were approaching down a well-lit gangway. Any sign we've been observed? I asked my men on the hillsides. Not yet, I heard their boss reply. Ships overhead still standing. No beams have been broken out. Men on ground absorbed in wreck. Most of them have crawled into it out of sight. Good, I said quickly. Deering hit her head, knocked out. One or more members of the crew approaching were not discovered yet. I'll take care of them. Stand a bit longer, but be ready. I think my last words must have been heard by the man who was approaching, for he stopped suddenly. I crouched at the far side of the compartment, motionless. I would not draw my sword if there were only one of them. He would be a weakling, I figured, and I should easily overcome him with my bare hands. 
Apparently reassured at the absence of any further sound, a man came around a sort of bulkhead, and I leaped. I swung my legs up in front of me as I did so, catching him full in the stomach and knocked him cold. I ran forward along the keel gangway, searching for the control room. I found it well up in the nose of the ship, and it was deserted. What could I do to jam the controls of the ship that would not register on the recording instruments of the other ships? I gazed at the mass of controls, levers and wheels galore. In the center of the compartment, on a massively braced universal joint mounting, was what I took for the repeller generator. A dial on it glowed, and a faint hum came from within its shielding metallic case. But I had no time to study it. Above all else, I was afraid that some automatic telephone apparatus existed in the room through which I might be heard on the other ships. The risk of trying to jam the controls was too great. I abandoned the idea and withdrew softly. I would have to take a chance that there was no other member of the crew aboard. I ran back to the entrance compartment. Wilma still lay where she had slumped down. I heard the voices of the Hans approaching. It was time to act. The next few seconds would tell whether the ships in the air would try or be able to melt us into nothingness. I spoke. Are you boys all ready? I asked creeping to a position opposite the door and drawing my handgun. Again, there was a chorus of assent. Then on the count of three, shoot up those repeller rays, all of them, and for God's sake, don't miss. And I counted. I think my three was a bit weak. I know it took all the courage I had to utter it. For an agonizing instant, nothing happened except that the landing party from the ship strolled into my range of vision. Then, startled, they turned their eyes upward. For an instant they stood frozen with horror at whatever they saw. One hurled his knife at me. It grazed my cheek. Then a couple of them made a break for the doorway. The rest followed. But I fired point-blank with my handgun, pressing the button as fast as I could and aiming at their feet to make sure my explosive rockets would make contact and do their work. The detonation of my rockets was deafening. The spot on which the Hans stood flashed into a blinding glare. Then there was nothing there except their torn and mutilated corpses. They had been fairly bunched, and I got them all. I ran to the door, expecting any instant to be hurled into infinity by the sweep of a disintegrator ray. Some eighth of a mile away, I saw one of the ships crash to earth. A disintegrator ray came into my line of vision, wavered uncertainly for a moment, and then began to sweep directly towards the ship in which I stood. But it never reached it. Suddenly, like a light switched off, it shot to one side. And a moment later, another vast hulk crashed to earth. I looked out and stepped out on the ground. The only Han ships in the sky were two of the scouts to the south, which were hanging perpendicularly and sagging slowly down. The others must have crashed down while I was deafened by the sound of the explosion of my own rockets. Somebody hit the other repeller ray of one of the two remaining ships, and it fell out of sight beyond a hilltop. The other, farther away, drifted down diagonally, its disintegrator ray playing viciously over the ground below it. I shouted with exultation and relief. Take back the command, boss, I yelled. 
His command, sending out jumpers in pursuit of the descending ship, rang in my ears, but I paid no attention to them. I leaped back into the compartment of the Han ship and knelt beside my Wilma. Her padded helmet had absorbed much of the blow, I thought. Otherwise, her skull might have been fractured. Oh, my head, she groaned, coming to as I lifted her gently in my arms and strode out in the open with her. We must have won, dearest, did we? We most certainly did, I reassured her. All but one crashed, and that one is drifting down towards the south. We've captured this one we're in intact. There was only one member of the crew aboard when we dove in. Less than an hour afterward, the big boss ordered the outfit to tune in ultraphones on 323 to pick up a translated broadcast of the Han Intelligence Office in New York from the Susquehanna station. It was in the form of a public warning and news item and read as follows. This is Public Intelligence Office, New York, broadcasting warning to navigators of private ships and news of public interest. The squadron of seven ships which left New York this morning to investigate the recent destruction of the GK-984 in the Wyoming Valley has been destroyed by a series of mysterious explosions similar to those which wrecked the GK-984. The phones, viewplates, and all other signaling devices of five of the seven ships ceased operating suddenly at approximately the same moment about 749. According to the Han system of reckoning time, seven and forty-nine one-hundredths after midnight. After violent disturbances, the location finders went out of operation. Electroactivity registers applied to the territory of the Wyoming Valley remain dead. The intelligence office has no indication of the kind of disaster which overtook the squadron except certain evidences of explosive phenomenon similar to those in the case of the GK-984 which recently went dead while beaming the valley in a systematic effort to wipe out the works and camps of the tribesmen. The office considers as obvious the deduction that the tribesmen have developed a new and as yet undetermined technique of attack on airships and has recommended to the heaven-born that immediate and unlimited authority be given the Navigation Intelligence Division to make an investigation of this technique and develop a defense against it. In the meantime, it urges that private navigators avoid this territory in particular and in general hold as closely as possible to the office intercity routes, which now are being patrolled by the entire force of the military office, which is beaming the routes generously to a width of 10 miles. The military office reports that it is at present considering no retaliatory raids against the tribesmen. With the Navigation Intelligence Division, it holds that unless further evidence of the nature of the disaster is developed in the near future, the public interest will be better served and at a smaller cost of life by scientific research than by attempts at retaliation, which may bring destruction on all ships engaged therein. So unless further evidence actually is developed, or the heaven-born orders to the contrary, the military will hold to a defensive policy. Unofficial intimations from Lotan are to the effect that the Heaven Council has the matter under consideration. The Navigation Intelligence Office permits the broadcast of the following condensations of its detailed observations. 
the squadron proceeded to a position above the wyoming valley where the wreck of gk984 was known to be from the record of its location finder before it went dead recently there the bottom projectoscope relays of all ships registered the wreck of gk984 teleprojectoscope views of the wreck and the bowl of the valley showed no evidence of the presence of tribesmen neither ship registers nor base registers showed any indication of electroactivity except from the squadron itself on orders from the base squadron commander the ld248 lk745 and LG-25 scouted southward at 3,000 feet. The GK-43, GK-981, and GK-220 stood above at 2,500 feet, and the GK-18 landed to permit personal inspection of the wreck by the Science Committee. The party debarked, leaving one man on board in the control cabin. He set all projectoscopes at universal focus except RB-3. This meant the third projectoscope from the bow of the ship on the right-hand side of the lower deck, with which he followed the landing group as it walked around the wreck. The first abnormal phenomenon recorded by any of the instruments at base was that relayed automatically from projectoscope RB4 of the GK-18, which, as the party disappeared from view in the back of the wreck, recorded two green missiles of roughly cylindrical shape projected from the wreckage into the landing compartment of the ship. At such close range, these were not clearly defined, owing to the universal focus at which the projectoscopes were set. The base captain of GK-18 at once ordered the man in the control room to investigate and saw him leave the control room in compliance with this order. An instant later, confused sounds reached the control room electrophone, such as might be made by a man falling heavily and footsteps reapproached the control room, a figure entering and leaving the control room hurriedly. The base captain now believes, and the stills of the photo records support his belief, that this was not the crew member who had been left in the control room. Before the base captain could speak to him, he left the room, nor was any response given to the attention signal the captain flashed throughout the ship. At this point, projectoscope RB3 of the ship, now out of focus control, dimly showed the landing party walking back towards the ship. RB4 showed it more clearly. Then on both these instruments, a number of blinding explosives in rapid succession were seen and the electrophone relays registered terrific concussions. The ship's electronic apparatus and the projectoscope's apparatus went dead. Reports of the other ship's base observers and executives backed by the photo records show the explosion is taking place in the midst of the landing party as it returned, evidently unsuspicious to the ship. Then in rapid succession, they indicate that terrific explosions occurred inside and outside the three ships standing above close to the rep ray generators and all signals from these ships therein went dead. Of the three ships scouting to the south, the LD-248 suffered an identical fate, at the same moment. Its records add little to the knowledge of the disaster, but with the LK-745 and the LG-25, it was different. The relay instruments of the LK-745 indicated the destruction by an explosion of the rear rep-ray generator and that the ship hung stern down for a short space, swinging like a pendulum. 
The forward viewplates and indicators did not cease functioning, but their records are chaotic, except for one projectoscope still, which shows the bowl of the valley and a GK-981 falling, but no visible evidence of tribesmen. The control room viewplate is also a chaotic record of the ship's crew tumbling and falling to the rear wall. Then the forward rep ray generator exploded and all signals went dead. The fate of the LG-25 was somewhat similar except that this ship hung nose down and drifted on the wind southward as it slowly descended out of control. As its control room was shattered, verbal reports from its action captain was precluded. The record of the interior rear viewplate shows members of the crew climbing towards the rear rep ray generator in an attempt to establish manual control of it and increase the lift. The projectoscope relays, swinging in wide arcs, recorded little of value except at the ends of their swings. One of these, from a machine which happened to be set in telescopic focus, shows several views of great value in picturing the falls of the other ships, and all of the rear projectoscope records enable the reconstruction in detail of the pendulum and torsional movements of the ship, and its sag towards the earth. But none of the views showing the forest below contain any indication of tribesmen's presence. A final explosion put this ship out of commission at a height of 1,000 feet and at a point four miles south by east of the center of the valley. The message ended with a repetition of the warning to other airmen to avoid the valley. End of chapter 6. Recording by Malcolm Cameron.